Amen. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and the book of 1 Peter, or the letter that Peter wrote to the church um, later on in his ministry, was written concerning the suffering and the afflictions that uh, Christians go through. The Bible is very clear that the people of God in this world are, are living in an environment that is contrary to the ways of God. We live in a fallen world. Um, we live in a fallen body. We live in a sinful uh, environment. And everything that, that the current of this world is, is, is doing is contrary to what God does and what God calls us to do in it. And so the result of that is that we find ourselves constantly swimming upstream. We're consistently fighting with our own selves, our flesh, that enemy within that's always seeking its own way. We're fighting against the currents of culture and of the world that are, are, are resisting the things of God and seeking to overthrow His truth and His authority and His ways and to push them out of existence. And that's a battle for us that we face. We're also fighting the forces of evil that have uh, dominated and taken control of this world and its system. And so spiritually, internally, environmentally, we're facing difficulties on a day-by-day basis, and, and the result of that is that we feel the pressures that are associated with it. And so the Christian life, although it's, it's, a, it's a life of deep joy and great peace and, and great understanding, knowing who we are and knowing who God is and where we're going, it's accompanied by affliction and suffering. David would say in the Psalms, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Apostle Paul would say to the churches in the book of Acts, he would exhort them and say that it's through much tribulation and affliction that we must enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus, our Savior, said to us that in this world we will have tribulation. But he said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And so suffering is a part of our lives as Christians. And if we are are disillusioned to think that we're going to live godly lives and not in some way suffer, then we've been lied to. We've been mistaught in some way because it's just a fact of the matter that there's going to be seasons of suffering. And so First Peter is written so that we might have understanding concerning the fact of suffering, and then it might help us to navigate our steps while we walk through seasons of difficulty uh, as we go through this world. Now, most forms of suffering fall into, and I say most, not all, but I'm kind of painting with a broad brush here, but fall into two categories. Uh, usually when we're suffering, it's either because of something that's in my life that I wish wasn't in my life. You know, something like a, a situation or a circumstance that's unpleasant, uh, a sickness or something that, that's afflicting me, some other kind of affliction outwardly, a tension in a relationship. There's something in my life that I wish wasn't. And so it's, it's a source of suffering, a thorn in my flesh, if you would. The other form of suffering is that when there's something that's not in my life that I wish there was. So I'm waiting on God to fulfill a promise, or I'm waiting for him to come through in something that I've been praying for, or there's a desire that's deeply rooted in me, and I don't see the fulfillment of that coming at any time in in my future. And for me, that's a source of anxiety or a source of suffering. And, And so we suffer various trials, different types. 
Now, there's a strange effect that suffering can have when I'm going through it in my life. And what that is, is that suffering can cause me to forget the good things that I have. And I think you know what I'm talking about. If you're walking in the woods on just a beautiful, perfect day, and you have a thorn in your heel, you know, and so you're walking, and but every time you step, you feel the searing pain of that thorn that's shooting up from you through your leg. When you feel that, it causes you to disenjoy all of the other good things about the day. That's something that can happen. And so Peter writes in the first half of the chapter, what we studied last week, and what he basically does is he tells us all of the things that we have as Christians in this world, in spite of the fact that we're suffering, and he bids us not to lose heart or to, to let those things out of our memory or out of our sight. He tells us that we have been chosen, that we've been born again unto a living hope, that we have a fixed inheritance that's awaiting us in heaven, that there's an internal joy that if we'll sit long enough to see through the present sufferings, that underneath that there's something in us that never existed prior to our coming to Christ. And that most of all, what we have is that we have a Savior and we have a salvation that is uniquely wonderful. Something that was sought out and searched out by those of old that never came to realize it, but that you and I are possessors of that Savior and of that salvation. And Peter says, no matter what you're going through, no matter what life issues to you, no matter what God brings across your, your path for whatever purpose he has in it, don't lose sight of the fact that God is so very near in all the ways that he is so very near to your life. And so suffering can cause me to forget and to become blind to the good that I have. And it can also cause me to become discouraged and then grow distant from the Lord. And that's why Peter wrote it. Because it was happening. In the first century, the, the people were saying, if all the suffering, then I don't know if I, I want to continue in the things of God. And they began to withdraw. And so Peter took in hand to write concerning these things. Now, the question that comes to us often when we find ourselves in a place of difficulty is, what can I do about it? I mean, right, when we're in a situation that we don't like, our natural recourse is to try to fix it. We want to get out of it or we want to do proactive things to end the trial or end the difficulty so that we can move on with life and put that behind us. And, and what Peter does now in the second half of the chapter is that he gives to us action. He tells us now what it is that we can do when we're in a season of suffering in order to help us. Now, I know you're getting excited because you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is just what I've been waiting for. It's not what you think. Because it isn't, it isn't like steps that you can take on a practical basis, but rather what Peter is going to give to us is the mindset, the proactive mindset that we're to carry with us into the difficulties of this life that will bring us through the trials that we go through unscathed. And so the first half of the chapter was knowledge. This is what you have. And now the second half of the chapter is action. This is what we are to do in the face of suffering and trials. And what he gives to us in these verses are seven 
actions or attitudes that we're to arm ourselves with in the midst of the sufferings that we go through. And so he begins now with his application in verse 13. Notice what he says. He says, wherefore. And so what that wherefore is, is a connective word that connects what he has said up to this point in the chapter to what he's going to say now as he concludes it. And so you could paraphrase that, in other words, by saying, in light of this, and because of all of this and all that you have, this is now what you're to do. And so what is it? He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that right there is about as classic King Jimmy in the language as you can get. That is absolutely not a phrase that we use in the modern day today to tell someone to gird up the loins of their mind. But it absolutely was something that was very common in Peter's day, a phrase that they would use. In his time, it was uh, normal for uh, the men and the women to wear some type of robe. Even the soldiers, if you look at the pictures of the Roman guards or Roman soldiers and what they would wear, there, there was some, somewhat of kind of a skirt or a robe that they would wear. And, and when they would go from a casual position on things to a proactive or a moving position on things, before they could do that effectively, they would have to gird up their loins. That was the phrase. And so they would kind of pull up their, their robe into a place where they could freely move their legs, and it was a call to action. And so essentially what Peter is saying here is he's saying, because of the fact that you're going through these afflictions... And because you're Christians, and when you put those two things together, those afflictions are not without purpose, but there's a reason for those things happening in your lives. Therefore, get active or, or, or prepare yourselves to take action in the midst of it. But you'll notice that he says that we're to gird up the loins of our mind. That this isn't a physical thing wherein we're actually going to go somewhere and apply a physical force to the things that we're going through. But rather what he's saying is that we're to arm ourselves with a certain mentality. That we're to, we're to prepare our minds for the fact that we're going to go through things in this life. And, and it's so that armament now of my mental capacities that he's given me an encouragement to go after. And so what am I to do? What armament in my mind am I to take up in the face of sufferings? Notice what he says, and it's the first thing if you're taking notes tonight. He tells us there right after, he tells us to be sober and hope. So you can write that down if you're taking notes tonight. The first thing that we're to do in the midst of suffering, afflictions, is that we're to be sober and we are to hope. Now, the word sober in the Greek it doesn't mean don't be drunk. You know, we kind of apply it that way that, you know, we're not to use substances. But the idea of the word that's used there is that we're to be collected in spirit. That we're to be circumspect, correctly aware of the situation and the, the circumstances that are surrounding us. And most of all, it means that, that we're to be able to deal in facts. That when we're in a situation, we can approach that situation according to the facts that surround that situation. Now, the opposite of sobriety or dealing with a situation according to its facts is to deal with a situation according to our feelings, 
or to deal with a situation according to the emotions that that circumstance bids me to respond to it with. And so sobriety is able to look at facts and ignore feelings. I think that the most unreliable thing on the planet is the faculty of human emotions. Human emotions can be so far off base from the reality of actually what's going on in a given situation. And oftentimes our emotions cause us to be completely dismissive of the facts in a given situation. When Jacob was going through the trial that God had brought into his life, Joseph was in his mind dead, but he was alive, but he was in Egypt and Jacob didn't know about it. His son Reuben had defiled one of his concubines. His son Judah had brought shame on the family because of his actions with a prostitute. And there was just chaos. Another one of his sons had been a mass murderer and brought reproach upon Jacob. And as Jacob was just looking at the trial that he was in, and feeling the weight of that trial and following the emotions that that trial was stirring up within him, he declared in in Genesis chapter 42, verse 36, he said in frustration, he said, all these things are against me. Joseph is dead. Benjamin is not. All these things are against me. That was an emotional response to a trial that ignored the facts. What are the facts? The fact is that God had made a promise in his life. The fact was that God was working all things together for good for Jacob and for his family and his future under the surface where Jacob couldn't see. But Jacob wasn't looking at facts. He was looking at his feelings in the situation and it caused him to believe that things were contrary to him when the fact was that things were in his favor. Elijah, the prophet, after calling down fire from heaven and seeing a great move of God and declaring by the Spirit of God that the hearts of the fathers were returning to the children and the children to the fathers. The next day, he gets a threatening letter from Jezebel. And she says, God, do more to me and also if I don't have your head separated from your body by this time tomorrow. And he's affected in his emotions by the power of that letter. And he runs in his human strength 300 miles to Mount Sinai. And then he cries before God and says, God, I'm not better than your fathers. I quit. I hand in my resignation. Just cut off, cut me off right now from the earth. I'm the only one left, God. Everyone has turned away from you. And God had to look at Elijah and say, what are you doing here? This isn't where I've called you to be. There's 7,000 in Israel that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Go home. I've got more work for you to do. In responding to his emotions, he brought himself outside of the will of God and declared something that was so contrary to the facts of what God was doing. And if he had stopped, he already knew that God was doing it. He was walking according to his emotions. David in 1 Samuel 27, when he was being tested, when he was being tried, when he was being prepared to be the king, And he realized that Saul was continuing to pursue his life after years of David's escaping out of his sight. He becomes frustrated and overwhelmed by the emotion of the situation. And he looks at it and he said, there's nothing better for me than that I should escape into the land of the Philistines. Now, he was told by the prophet Gad that he was to stay in the borders of Judah. 
But he checked himself out and started a year and four months of backsliding and living a lie and a double life because he was following his emotions rather than the facts of the situation, which he knew that he was being trained to become the king, the great leader of Israel that he ultimately would. We read the book of Job and we see that in his trial, we have 35 chapters full of his emotions speaking according to his feelings, the way things seemed to him in the midst of a trial, completely separated from the fact of the matter that God was at work behind the scenes doing something that he couldn't understand, walking according to emotion rather than according to facts. And what sobriety tells you and I, in the words of Peter, as he tells us to be sober and to hope, is that we are not to walk according to our emotions and that we're not to trade what we know for what we don't know. What we know is that God is working all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. What we know is that we're kept in his hand and that we're the apple of his eye. What we know is that he is moving in the unseen realms to turn things about for our salvation and for our favor and that he is delivering us moment by moment. Those are the facts of a situation. And we're not to trade that away because we feel differently about it than what it is. What God says is everything and what we feel is nothing. And so what God calls us to in the middle of a trial is that we're to look at the facts surrounding that trial and that is what God says and that we're to hold on to hope in the middle of that trial. And what hope is, is hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. That God says he's working it for my good and so therefore I'm going to believe him for that Good in spite of it. And what's the reason that we can hope within a trial? Notice what Peter goes on to say. He says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end. Notice for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that word there? That great big word grace right there in the middle of the verse. That's why you and I can have hope in the middle of a circumstance. Because the fact of the matter for every one of our lives, if we're in Christ Jesus here tonight, is that the word grace has been written over every one of our pages. Is that God deals with us according to His grace. My feelings say, well, I'm condemned. My feelings say, I'm reaping what I've sown. My feelings say that God hates me and that He's against me. But God's word says, no, grace. And it will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That carries two meanings, by the way. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It has an immediate application. That is, when Christ is revealed in the situation that I'm in, while I'm still here on earth. And it also means when Christ is revealed ultimately, at his coming or at my passing, when I see all things clearly and I know even as I'm known. So whether it's in the ending of my trial, or whether it's in the ending of my life, When I see things for what they really are, it will be revealed to me that everything I went through was a byproduct of His grace, no matter how painful it was within my life. And so I'm to arm myself and gird up the loins of my mind, and in the middle of a trial, I'm to be sober, dealing with things according to fact, and I'm to hope. I'm to expect that good is going to come from the situation, no matter how bad the situation 
seems to be. The second thing that he tells us to do uh, in his exhortation is in verses 14 through 17, and it deals with our behavior and our manner of living. Notice what he says here. He says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts in your ignorance, but contrary, as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle. That's what that word conversation means. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. So the second thing that Peter tells us to do when we're in the middle of trials, the thing we're to arm ourselves with is that we're to fashion ourselves with obedience. And if you're writing notes, you could just put that down, that we're to fashion ourselves with obedience. Now, the word fashion yourselves that he used literally means conform to a pattern. And it's very much like what you and I do on a constant basis when we we notice what someone is wearing or the way someone is wearing a particular thing, and we are attracted to it. And we say, I like the way that looks. And I wonder if that would look good if I wore that. And then, you know, we kind of explore the option for a little while. I know for me it happens about right before something goes out of style. You know, like these. You see that? It takes until it's just about over. And I'm like, you know, I kind of like that. You know, when it first comes out, I'm like, that is the stupidest thing I have ever seen. You know, it looked like a clown, you know. But then by the end, when it's just about to change, I go, man, I like that. And I buy like six pairs, and then it changes. And the new thing comes, and I say, that is the stupidest look I have ever seen. You know, flared bottoms, you know, the whole thing. That's what it means to fashion yourselves, first of all, not according to our former lifestyle. That is, the way that we're to behave and conduct ourselves in the world in the face of suffering is that we're not to revert to our old ways. We're not to go back to the things that we used to do because we don't like the nature of the circumstances that we're presently in. Instead, we're to fashion ourselves, he says, according to obedience. Now, what is obedience? Obedience is to conduct our behavior or our lives according to what God says. That's the way that we're supposed to live. And that means two different things. It means, first of all, that I'm to conduct my life or or fashion my life according to what is written in the recorded word of God. That if God says something about what my lifestyle as a Christian is supposed to look like, then I'm to conform my behavior to what that lifestyle attribute is according to what God says in his word. That's the easy one. I mean, we don't do it, but that's the easy part because God so clearly states in his word what's acceptable and what's not. But the other part of obedience and the part that's easier to excuse is the part where the Holy Spirit speaks into our lives the things that God wants us to do and the things that God wants us to be. God says by His Holy Spirit that He has the right to speak into our lives. And every time He does it, we have the choice whether or not we're going to obey and yield to what God is speaking to us or whether or not we're going to excuse it away as just being the byproduct of our thoughts or being a legalistic tendency from the past, or being something that's being put on us from some other source. But we're to obey not just what God tells us in his word clearly, but we're to follow and obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit within our heart. I love what God says concerning Abraham 
in Genesis chapter 26. He speaks to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And he's giving him the promise that he had given to Abraham, his father. And I want you to just listen to what he says. I'm going to read verse 4 and then verse 5 will come up on the screen. God says this. He says to Isaac, I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give unto your seed all these countries. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then he says this in verse 5. Because the reason is because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Do you see what God says concerning Abraham? He says that he was obedient, and the obedience of Abraham superseded just the recorded statutes and known principles of God's word in those days. But God says that he obeyed even my voice. That when there was a prompting in his heart, he was so sensitive to want to walk according to my ways that he obeyed even in those things. And God bids us to do the same thing. That we're to arm ourselves with the mentality that God, no matter what trial or suffering or difficulty I'm facing in my life, not only am I going to persist in hope that you're doing something in the middle of it, but I'm going to respond in obedience in every way that I can, that the manner of life that people see when they look at me is a life of obedience and a life of careful adherence to what it is that you say. Notice that Peter in these verses equates obedience to holiness. We know that we're called to be holy. Peter says plainly to us here that the command of Scripture is that we're to be holy because God is holy. And oftentimes we can wonder, what does that look like? What does it look like to be holy? The answer is to just be obedient to what God says. That when we submit to his word and to his ways, we're reflecting his holiness to a lost and a dying world. Obedience in our lives is the evidence that we love God and that we're abiding in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So obedience is is the evidence of our love towards him, that we respond and that we receive and that we love him. Someone who says that they love God, but disregards what he says, doesn't love God, according to the the word of Jesus, what he said in and of himself. Jesus said also in John chapter 15, verse 10, he said, if you keep my commandments, that's obedience, then you will abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. We want to abide in him. Abiding in him is what brings forth fruit in our lives. But abiding is the result of obedience. And so we're to obey the things that he says. I want you to notice also, before we move on here, notice the word that Peter uses in verse uh, 15, when he says, be ye holy in all manner of your lifestyle. Do you see that word all right there? I want you to circle it in your Bible and just give that some thought maybe over the next day or over the next couple of days. When Peter talks about all manner of our life, he's saying to us that every part of who we are and every part of what we are is to be surrendered in obedience to the will of God for our lives. Every single one of us here, we're all like these multifaceted beings, right? And we have all these areas of our life. 
We have our professional life, which kind of, you know, consumes our adulthood, you know, our work and the things that we give ourselves to there. We have our family life, which is completely separate. What we are as husbands and wives and fathers uh, and brothers and sisters. We have our church life, our fellowship, and we have our spiritual life and our relationship with God. We have our recreational life, our hobbies and the things that we like to do. We have our, our thought life and our, our, our ambition life. I mean, we have all these different parts of us that make us who we are. They make up our personality. And what God calls us to when he brings us into a relationship with himself is he calls us to surrender all of what we are to him and allow him to be the Lord over every part of our lives. It doesn't mean we're not to have different, different facets. He made us to have different facets. But we're not to hold back any of those parts of our life and say, well, God, this is mine, but you can have every other part of our life. Because when we do that, what happens is that one part of our life is out of harmony with God, wherein the rest of our lives are in harmony with God. And you know what that does? It makes the whole life to go out of tune. If I was up here and I had a 12-string guitar... There's nothing more beautiful than the sound of a 12-string guitar when every one of the strings is perfectly in tune. There's something so majestic about the highs and the lows and the harmonies and the way that, that, that those strings just flow together. It's just an absolutely beautiful sound. But if just one of those 12 strings is even slightly out of tune with the other 11, you can just throw that thing right in a bonfire. Because it is the most grating sound you could ever hear. It's terrible. It's, it's awful. And what happens is when 11 parts of our life are surrendered to God, and we were doing, we think, man, we're doing so good because these 11 parts of my life, but there's just this one part of my life, God, that I'm not going to give over to you. I'm going to hold on to this one. Or it's not surrendered in some way. And what happens is that puts our whole life out of tune with heaven. And when we pray, the angels go, oh my goodness, what is that noise? And God says, don't worry, I'm working on it. They're going to give it over. Just be, you know, be patient and give, us, give it time. But here's the command. All manner. Hold nothing back. It could be, and I want you to think about this, that the very reason for the suffering of the season of life that I'm in could be that God is seeking to get his hands on that one string that I have yet to yield to him for him to tune up and surrender. And you know what's amazing is all it takes, all it takes is for me to just yield it to God and say, God, I am willing that you should have control over this string in my life. And you know what happens when we, from our heart, utter those words and mean it? It's like when you drive into a car wash. You ever do that? You, you know, you're kind of like you're aiming, you're hoping you can hit the right spot, and then you hit it and they go, and you, you put it in neutral, you take your foot off the brake, and you just go. And when we yield to God and say, God, I give you place. I don't know how to get myself there. I don't know how to tune the string myself, but I give it to you. Then God says, all right, now I can begin working in that area of your life. And he begins doing what he has to, 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 to take control over that part. Of, it doesn't mean he's going to take it out of our life, but it must be his. We're to belong to him in all manner of our life. And so we're to fashion ourselves with obedience. And we're to arm ourselves with that mindset. 
in the middle of a trial. And he says that that's supposed to be under his control. The third thing that Peter tells us is in verse 17, and that is that we're not to neglect or forget the fear of God. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, and if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Notice the word that he, he strategically uses in his uh, lead up to, to his call for us to fear God. He uses the word sojourning. Circle that word. Do you know what it means? It means that we are strangers or foreigners living abroad. We're just passing through. We're journeying through this world, and this world is not our home. And what Peter is seeking to bring to our realization by saying this in this way is that you and I are passing through this life. This isn't our home. And that at the end of our journey, we're going to stand before him. And as soon as we stand before him, we're going to give an account to him for the things that we did within our life. And because we're going to give an account to him, he doesn't judge with an uneven balance. He says, therefore, live your life in the fear of God. One time I saw a church sanctuary that had a rope that surrounded the perimeter of the ceiling like a crown molding. It was a thick rope like you would see on an old style ship that would hold up the anchor. And the the rope started in a certain spot and it went all the way around the room and ended at that same spot. But the, 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 the reason it was there is that the first eight inches of that rope was wrapped in red tape. And once, you know, someone was asked, what's the story with that rope and why is it there and what does it mean? And the answer was this, is that the, the, those first eight inches, no, they said that the, the rope itself represents the timeline of every individual life. And it represents eternity because every life is eternal. That's why it starts and, and it just continues. But the first eight inches of that rope represent the time that we spend here on earth. The rest of that distance that goes all the way around is eternity, where we'll spend spend with with Jesus forever. And, And it's to be a constant reminder to us that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And in order for us, when we stand before him, to be able to give an account of our lives and not be ashamed, or to not look at it with regret and say that we missed out on what God had for us in our lives, It is essential that we maintain a healthy fear of God. Those that stand before Jesus and are ashamed before him because they missed out on his plan for their lives and they short-circuit their reward for all of eternity, part of the reason why they'll be ashamed is because they lost the fear of God at some point. They didn't like the way God was dealing with them. They didn't like the situation of the trial that they were in. And they said, I'm sorry, God, but if this is the way you're going to deal with me, then I'm going to do my own thing. And they walk away from him. There was a time in my life, uh, I want to say several years back uh, at, at this point, when I was going through uh, a, a, a difficult season. I would say it was the trial of my life. And it was, it was overwhelming. It was beyond uh, my ability. It was heavier than what I could bear up under. 
And it was ongoing, it was constant, it was without end. And I was at a point in my life when I was completely without hope that, that God was going to do anything with me. And I was, in all sincerity, I was angry with God. I was angry that I had given my life to him in the way that I had. I was angry that I had cut uh, cut off some of the, 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 the avenues to the past that would have opened up other opportunities to me. I was angry for the direction that I had taken because I just felt so abandoned by God in the situation that I was in. And I remember during that time walking in a place and, and literally thinking to myself that I wish I could fight God. Like literally fight him. Like throw down the gloves. God, it's, it's you and me. I just, I'm so, I just want to fight you. And then I remember getting frustrated because that's not a fair fight. <laughs> you can't beat God. And I remember just being so frustrated because I just wanted to fight him. And, and I knew I couldn't win. And I remember saying, God, it's not fair because I want to fight you, but I, no one can fight you and win. And, and I just want out. God, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too much for me. Now, here's what I didn't know. What I didn't know when I was going through that difficulty is that God was, was doing in my life or performing in my life a very much needed breaking. I needed to be broken. There were things in my life that needed to be crushed. And God in his grace was crushing things in my life that needed to be crushed within my life. And what I also didn't know in the midst of that trial is that it was almost over. And that he was going to turn things around very quickly. And that his blessing, his presence, his promise, his glory, all of those things were on the very cusp of being revealed to me when I was in the trial that I thought would never end in my life. But here's what I can testify before you tonight. Is that if I did not have a fear of God, which I did and I do, then I don't know if I would have made it through that trial without turning my back on him in the midst of it. Now, not long after that, I was reading the book of Job. And I was reading through the book of Job. I came to chapter 9. And I'll let you guys read chapter 9 of the book of Job for yourselves. Do you know what it says in the book of Job in chapter 9? Job says, I want to fight him. Job says, it's not fair because I want to fight God, but no one can fight God and win. And I read those words not long after I thought those same things. And you know what it was for me? It was the greatest comfort I had ever received in my entire life. Because what that was, when I saw those words written by the, by the, by the, by the pen of Job, is it was a footprint in the path that I was on. I realized that I had set my foot in the very step that the man Job had set his foot. Not, not at all to say that my trial was anywhere near on par with what he went through. I wouldn't dare compare myself in that way. But to realize that part of what God leads us through in our path and journey through this world is through trials that are so heavy that if we don't maintain a healthy and holy fear of God, then we're in a dangerous place. And the path of this narrow way that we've been called into is strewn with the carcasses and the bones of those that have been swept aside for no other reason other than that they haven't maintained a healthy fear of a holy God. And Peter says, we're going to stand before him one day and therefore we're to pass the time of our sojourning here in the fear of God. Arm yourselves, saints, 
with the fear of God that is unwavering. Though he loves us, he is holy, he is stronger than we are, and we are to fear him very much. He goes on in verse 18 now to tell us, uh, verses 18 through 21, the fourth thing that we're to gird up the loins of our mind concerning, and that is that we're to set our faith and our hope in God alone. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, for as much, and I want you to circle that word because it's a very important word in the context of our study. He says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain lifestyle that you received by the tradition of your fathers. Peter says, to the same degree, that's what for as much means, to the same degree that you know, you have a knowledge of, the fact that your redemption from your vain and empty life that you inherited when you came into this world, that that redemption was not purchased with money. But rather, he says in verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In other words, the payment or the price that was paid for you and I to be Christians was not somebody signed a check that bailed us out of jail, but rather it was the very blood of the Son of God, perfect, pure, and holy. The highest valuation that can be placed on anything in all of eternity, past, present, or future, is the price that was paid to secure your redemption. And Peter says, to the same degree that you realize and recognize the greatness of that price, who, verse 20, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times, listen, for who? For you. Meaning that it was foreordained of God that you and I would be redeemed. On the first day of creation, your name and your face and mine was known by God that he was going to spend his son's blood to redeem us. And to the same degree that you recognize that, he says, who by him do believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory, and here it is, that your faith and hope might be in God. So put the whole thought together. Here's what Peter's saying. For as much or to the degree that you realize the price that was paid for your redemption, to that same degree and measure, put your faith and hope in God. Now, when you think about, on one side of the scale, the price that was paid for my redemption, on the other side of the scale, where I put my faith and hope in this life. Peter says, put your faith and hope in the thing that carries the most value. Now, in between the lines, Peter lists three things there that people put their faith and hope in. First of all, silver and gold, right? What do people hope in when they're in a trial that's going to get them out of a trial? Silver and gold. Can silver and gold help in the midst of a trial that God's brought into the life? It absolutely cannot. It might give you a temporary reprieve, but if God's ordained you to be in a squeeze, guess where you're going to be? In a squeeze. And no amount of silver and gold is going to get you out of that squeeze. The second thing that Peter mentions in that 
is the vain tradition, that is, the old ways. Oh, I'm going to trust in my own ways. I'm in a trial, and I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get through this thing with my intelligence, with my craftiness, with my eloquence, with my gifts and my ability to maneuver situations and manipulate people. I'm going to get myself out of this. Good luck. The third thing that he mentions is what others can bring to us. The vain tradition of your fathers. You're going to trust in other people. Someone else is going to get me out of this. I'm going to put my hope in government. I'm going to put my hope in my boss or my friend. I'm going to put my hope in a spouse or in another human being. You know what the Bible says about the help of man? It says it's empty. Do you know what David said in Psalm 142? David said these words in Psalm 142, verse 3. He says, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. Notice his assessment. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Do you know that that's always true? Who are people looking out for on a constant basement? Who said? Yeah, you guys all said it. We look out for ourselves, right? We are the most selfish creatures on the planet. And when we put our burden on someone else thinking that they're going to help us, that is the most unreliable place on the planet to put things. He, David concludes, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, you're my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. That's wise. So listen. What holds more value? Silver and gold. My own ways. The help of someone else. Or the blood of Jesus Christ. The most precious price that's ever been paid. And the love that motivated God to pay that price on my behalf that he knew before the foundation of the world. Of those four things, what holds the highest value? The blood. And to the degree that you and I understand that, what Peter bids us to do, no matter what we're going through on a daily basis in our lives, is that we are to put our faith and hope in God, not in any other thing. That we are to trust exclusively in Him in the middle of the things that we go through. Vain is the help of man. We've been redeemed with the precious blood. Therefore, he's worthy that we would put our trust in him. Paul said it to the Romans this way. He said, God, who withheld not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now with him freely give us what? All things. If he hasn't withheld Christ from us, he's not going to abandon us in the middle of our trials. He goes on and he gives us the fifth thing in verse 22 that we're to take up in our mind, and that is that we're to have sincere and fervent and intentional love for one another. It says in verse 22, seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. One of the key things to bearing up in the difficulties and trials of this life is the support that we receive from other Christians. Not that they help us, but that they're there for us. The Bible says that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If Satan can get a group of believers to have hostility towards one another and to be bitter and clamorous towards one another, then he has set forth the trap 
of divide and conquer, which is a strategy from the very beginning. We must pray that the Lord fills us with love for each other. We live in one of the most prideful generations that has ever existed in human history, and it has very much crept into the church. There are walls that are built up, even in our church, and I think our church is a pretty loving church, that exist between people wherein we measure each other, we gauge each other. And if we're honest, can we really say that our attitude and mindset towards one another is that we love one another with a pure heart fervently? If we do, and if we did, man, what a glorious thing would happen. Did you know that the root of every revival that happened in the world from Genesis to Revelation, one of the prerequisites of it was unity? Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, for it was there that God commanded the blessing. So necessary, so vital that we love one another. The sixth thing that he tells us in verse 23 is that we're to maintain our identity as born-again Christians. He says this, he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, that is a birth after the flesh, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. One of the great temptations that we face, we don't even need to really be in a trial to face the temptation of it. One of the great temptations is to be ashamed of our identity as born-again Christians. We'll call ourselves other things. You know, say, well, I'm a Christian, you know, or I'm a believer, or I go to church. Listen, no, no, no. We're born again. The world makes it a stigma. The world says it as a shame. You're a born-againer, aren't you? But the Bible holds it as a badge of honor. That you and I have been born of God. The Holy Spirit of God has come into our lives. He's redeemed us to a relationship with himself. He's given us the privilege of adoption and the hope of eternity. Because we're born again. That's what we are. It's who we are. And we're not to be ashamed of it. No matter what God is doing in our lives at any given moment. And then finally, number seven, we're to gird up the loins of our mind in this that we're to keep our worldly accomplishments and our worldly achievements in perspective. Notice what he says. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man, all of our accomplishments, all of what we achieve, all of what people speak well of us in this life, all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers And the flower thereof falleth away. Beware of the emphasis and the motive behind what it is that you seek to achieve while you're here in this world. One week ago tonight, I was driving here and there's still just enough daylight at that time. And we had just had that massive storm the previous Sunday and then a little bit more, uh, you know, after that. And one of my neighbors that I drive past their house, um, they had built this, I want to just call it a pile of snow. It was like a tower. And the thing had to have been like 15 feet high. And, and it was obviously the work of a dad and his kids out there in the yard. And he, they just built, I mean, it was the biggest snow structure I had ever seen. It probably had a diameter of about eight feet and it was probably 15 feet high. And it was just this massive, perfectly shaped, rounded structure. 
And as I drove past it, I looked at it, and I, I literally said to myself, that's impressive. And then I said, that's really sad. Because I'm a dad, and I've built things like that with my kids. And do you know what happens? They melt. And in like a day, you're like, wait, what, what happened? It was so impressive. I mean, that was the biggest thing I'd ever seen. It was beautiful. We do it with snowmen. We see how big we can make them. You know, with this stout nose and like, you know, carrots all over it and things and grapes and hats and winter clothes and it's stout, it's proud. It's like, man, look at that thing that we built. And then four hours later, the carrot is crooked. It's hanging off sideways. The grapes are on the ground. The birds are pecking at the things that we use. You know, it's sagging. A stick falls off. The head rolls over. We're putting it, propping it back up. Listen, listen. If you hear nothing else, at least hear this. Every single thing that we accomplish in this world is a snowman or a snow tower at best. Because as soon as we finish with it, it begins to melt away. And every accomplishment that we achieve that doesn't have eternal value, melts away forever, and it means absolutely nothing. And for us to come to the end of our three score and ten, or whatever amount of time that God graciously allows us to live in this world, and whatever we can look back upon, if it isn't for Christ, if it isn't with eternity's perspective, if it hasn't done something to prop up the next generation, if it isn't for God's purposes in the, 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 the progression of his kingdom, then it will melt away like a sandcastle that's toppled with a wave and it will count for absolutely nothing. Now, can I tell you this in irony? That pile of snow that I passed was probably one of the most valuable things I'd seen all that day and seen since it, quite frankly. Because you know Why? Because if a dad spent four hours or six hours building that with his kids, that was the best prize, the best investment of time and energy and force that anyone could ever give. Because of the bond, the memory, the things that are established there, what's the point? The things that we give ourselves to, the things that drive us, our ambitions, our goals, what's their motive and their purpose? What are they bringing us to? What's the aim at the end? Everything that we do isn't in vain. But if it is, it's a complete waste of life. Keep it in perspective. So in closing, and the worship team can come as we close, we've been given a call to action by the Apostle Peter. He tells us that we're to gird up the loins of our mind. We're to arm ourselves with this mindset. And so we ask the question, as we seek to apply these things to our circumstances and our individual experiences with God, you say, how in the world do I do that? How do I arm myself with this mentality and the thing? You know what the answer is? It's in our closing verse. He says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Do you know that every single thing that Peter has asked us to do in our Bible study tonight is directly linked to the Word of God in some way? How is it that we can live soberly and not according to our motions? It's by the Word of God, right? Where do we establish the facts of a given circumstance and trial? We establish the facts upon what God has said. It's the Word of God. How do we hope in the middle of a situation? We hope according to what God has said, what He's told us to put our hope in. How do we obey? 
we obey according to what God has spoken and revealed and recorded in his word. How do we walk in the fear of God? We walk in the fear of God because we know God. How do we know God? We know him through his word. How can we appropriate the value of the blood of Jesus Christ? We know of it in the word of God, the truth of God that reveals to us who Christ is. How is it that we can be born again, that we might maintain our identity as those that are born again? It's through the word of God. He says that we're born according to the precious seed of the word of God, doesn't he? How is it that we can keep our worldly ambitions and goals in perspective when we hold them in the light of God's word? And so how do we take these things that Peter said and make them our own? The answer is that we become lovers of God's word. I feel sorry for a Christian that doesn't love their Bible, that doesn't find life in the things that God has said. It is the most precious possession that we have on the planet. We're to give ourselves to the word of God. And then secondarily, how do we do it? We go back through the passage and we ask God the Holy Spirit to take each one of these things and to make them our mindset. God, I am so given to my emotions. When I go through a trial, I cannot get past the way I feel in that trial. I cannot get my eyes on you. Help me get my eyes on you. Change me from the inside out. Teach me to walk in sobriety and to have hope in the midst of my difficulties. God, there are strings in my life that are so out of harmony with what you call acceptable and with what you call holy. But I yield those things to you, God, and I pray in Jesus' name that you would make those things to be in tune and in line with me. God, I have a hard time with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I confess to you, I don't have a fervent, passionate love for my brothers and sisters. I'm a judgmental person. I'm critical. I'm malignant in the way that I think. I'm slanderous. I'm a gossip. God, change me from the inside out that I might be a reflection of what you've called me to be. Lord, in all honesty, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of my identity in Christ. It's hard for me to swim upstream. God, change me in this. And as we bring these things to him and we ask him to perform this work in our life, he, by his Holy Spirit, comes in and he changes us. He conforms us into the person of Christ. And then... The way is opened for God's sufferings to complete their perfect work within my life. And so may he arm us with this mindset. May the loins of our mind be girded up. May we walk with him in his truth. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for what you've spoken to us. And we ask you, Father, that you would take the seed of it, plant it deep inside, that you'd carry the conviction of your truth to us, Lord that we might be changed. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the blood. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the narrow way. And we even thank you for our sufferings, Lord, for what you accomplish and do through them in us. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?